Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code KINDAFUNNY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Game Over Greggy Show. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Miller, alongside the producer. It really is a shit show. Slash seducer, Nick Scarfino. Yeah. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you back from Austin. It's good to see you back. I missed you. I felt the, like I had been gone a long time. I think we all are around each other. So We pushed through a threshold after a certain point where we were all trying to just have our own lives. And at this point, why? No. We should all just be the same person living in the same room. It's true. And having sex with the same women. Well, so now what's, you've uh, made it. <laughs> <that's laughs> two layers. No, is that you, can, be... you can touch my muscles gonna... if you want. Yeah. Damn it. Look at those things. Over here, the Pride of Long Island, Colin Moriarty. It's good to be here with you today. Greg. What are you doing to Superman's head? <laughs> just clearing out the dust. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't use the piggy bank much anymore. No. I got I a cup of change in, in my room though. now. A lot of change. There's a lot of change in it. That's all change. Shake them. Shake them by the mic. Yeah, see? Right, you, you can continue. All right, cool. <laughs> okay. I'm just you go through my that's my change. And over here, this is a big one, ladies and gentlemen. There's no Tim. Instead, co-writer and the director of Air, Christian Cantamesa. Thank you, sir. Christian, thank you so much for coming by. It's I'm, my great pleasure. I'm very excited to, to have you here. I've been I've been around you for a long time, and I didn't even know it because you you have this new movie coming out, Air. It's out. It, if you're watching this on YouTube, it's already out. If you're watching this over on Patreon, it's out Friday. Everybody go get it. Because you can get it in theaters, or you can go get it on digital services. Yes. Sorry. you like the It's like the bucket of Halloween candy. <laughs> I apologize. I don't mean to be disruptive. No, it's fine. So you can go get it anywhere, all over the place. And all this over is, the place. This is big for you. Movies are big. It's a big deal, yeah. I mean, it's my first movie, yeah. and your first movie is always a big deal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hope people enjoy it and go see it. It would be a good start if people went to see it. Yeah, that'd be helpful it. if people yeah. went out and see it. Of course, links in the description to go get the digital version right now. But we, but we, so it is theater and then and then VOD at the same. Same day. Same yeah. time. You're the that. future. You're the I future. That. That's, That's what I'm always telling. I live Nikki. in the future. That's I why I'm here. <laughs> oh god, Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I don't want these. I, I, I want this is how to be. I I, I want to see certain movies in theaters, mm -hmm. but they're very few and far between. I want to see other movies just when I can. Fantastic Four. I I don't want to see that movie ever. <laughs> I don't want it to exist in my universe. So sad. I want I want to see it, and I, I want to see it because I I just I really do want to form my own opinion of this film. It's been so just blasted in the media lately, and I think it's ever so more because of the tweets that have come out and all that stuff. I, I feel bad for I feel bad for the filmmakers on that one. Sure, I do want to go at least try to support it. But um, having said that, the, here's my issue: is that uh, this film is out. Which is fantastic. There's another great film coming out. There's 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 good films coming there's out more that I can't. I'm like I'd rather spend my time watching Air than a movie that I'm probably going to enjoy way more than Fantastic Four. No, I mean, I, you know, thank you. I've seen it already, so I, I did enjoy it. it. No, no. To be clear, Nick <laughs> and I have seen Air. We've watched Air. We have watched. We enjoy Air. Air. I sign off on Air. I sign off Period. on Air as well. We're gonna talk I about do. Air at topic two. I never t I never tip my hand to the audience. Let them know. Topic two, Colin. 
going to talk about air and air. making movies and doing all these different oh, things. Oh, so you're not you're talking about air in the movie. Not just, just not, not like the molecules. And not oxygen, carbon. Not the molecules. Okay. Just the fact okay. of making this movie okay. with Norman Reedus from The Walking I Dead. I wanted to just make sure that we were talking, you know, everyone knows that we're not talking about, you know, the atmosphere. I agree with you. Okay. Topic number one we're going to talk about is that you, you wrote a bunch of cool video games. I, I worked on a bunch of cool video games, yes. I you, did. you did the Manhunt? I did oh, Manhunt. I love Manhunt. Yes. You, did, you, did, you did Red Dead? Red Dead. Redemption. I worked on Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Yeah, I've never heard of that one. Uh, yeah, small game. <laughs> this Deus Ex, who I used to call Deus Ex. No, uh, I worked on Shadow of Mordor. Yeah, that's the most recent one I've done. And then, and then something that I just old stuff. Then right? you worked on Volume, the game. Uh, yeah, then, sure. Then you wrote Batman, uh, Batman, no. and uh, yeah. Shadow just, of Mordor. The one with Red Dead. What, what are you doing? I'm, I'm yeah, having fun. I'm having fun, my friend Christian. Everybody, yeah. back off. Right. And, and I manufacture credits, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> great for my career. Um, so you did a whole bunch of awesome games. Shadow I did of Mordor, some, Red some, Dead, Manhunt. Some fun games, and I worked with some really fun people. So I, you know, I had a. Right, that's where we're going to start talking. Experience. But first, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't know, this is the Game Over Greggy Show. Each and every week, four, sometimes five best friends gather on this table. Each bring a random topic of discussion for your amusement. I never realized how much I'd miss Tim until right then. Tim really does it hard. He does it really hard. I do, you just do I, those I do like a, It's not even nearly the same. Very superficial sort of... It's like a wipe when you say this table. I just got like... I use it because there's so many different specs of shit on this table. I know. Table I, we this. really... Like, this table's fucking This table's table. seen things. This table's seen stuff. This we table, don't get a new table until we get an office. All right. Or, or until this one, even, and, until Kevin inevitably just falls, falls right through, through this it, one, like Chris Farley. Like you, you know, you're going to. Nope. If you like the show, toss us a few bucks over on Patreon.com/slash Kind of Funny and get every episode early. If you don't want to give us any money, no big deal. Everything goes up on YouTube.com/slash Kind of Funny for free Monday through Thursday, topic by topic, until Friday when we post the entire show as an MP3 in one big video. All right, so Christian, here's what I want to know: How does one get started writing video games? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> when I, I started when nobody was starting, I don't know. I, I started in the mid nineties, um, well, 96, um, in Italy. So I, I don't have the most Kids traditional. Kids moved to Italy. Moved to want, Italy. you want to do this. It was a very different industry back then, but it was fundamentally a time when people were writing the book on how to tell a story in games, because there were some seminal games that had story in them. I had played Maniac Mansion on my Commodore 64 sure. and uh, The Secret of Monkey Island on my Amiga. And those kind of games kind of showed me that there was a lot of uh, uh, potential in the medium. But um, those people working on those games weren't writers or game designers. Again, when I started, the word game designer didn't really mean that much. It was just some companies didn't even have game designers, um, let alone writers. I mean, there was the occasional writer that was also designing the game or was coming in for a week to, to do some dialogue for the VO. Um, so it, it was a very unconventional job opportunity. But um, I started working with friends of mine because they needed... It was, it was an adventure game that it's long and forgotten, but uh, they, they needed a story. They had... They had the technology, they had sure. the engine, they they had an idea for the game, um, but but they needed to tell a story with the game, and so they kind of came to me, and I was always into games, always into movies. Uh, you know, I was making movies when, with my friends when I was thirteen years old. So um, so people that are creatively doing stuff uh, naturally gravitate to each other, and 
in Italy, especially in the small fishing village where I come from, there's a lot of a lot of people doing games and doing movies. And I was going to so, say, did, did the town try to revolt against you? And the like, town no, you have to raise pasta. And I had to escape. Actually, <laughs> I, had to, I had to. You're never allowed. And back. I was like a pilgrim. I was welcomed by the United States. No, I actually ended up going to. London and Paris and Scotland and then here. It was a long pilgrimage. But uh, so that's how I started. I basically started and I remember starting and having to figure out how to write for a video game and how to design a video game. And there was nothing, no books, nothing. And a new web website had just started. And I was like, this is really cool. And the game of this, the name of this website was gammasutra.com and it was like brand new i think i'm i registered on it and i was like number four or something (laughs) those were the days those were the days (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah. things have changed since then there's now that you can study game writing and game design at university there's like a game design curriculum sure it's unbelievable it's easy now it, now the kids have it too easy (laughs) we were making it up back in the good old days that said, I'm going to get my David Crockett hat off. <laughs> and, um, but, but that's how I started. I, okay. I started because there wasn't a lot of people doing it, and there was a desire in the industry to become more of a storytelling medium, and clearly it's just one avenue for games. Minecraft and Flight Simulator can show us that you can do perfectly well in, in games without having a story. Sure. But I think it's the... It's a little bit like saying that cinema doesn't need a story because there's documentaries. I mean, sure, mm-hmm. there's like just different ways of uh, uh, utilizing the medium. And telling a story in a game is just something that I really enjoy doing. And uh, it's a little bit different than telling it in a film or in a sure. comic book or that. So That's an interesting way of looking at it, too, because I've often thought about... Because I, I mean, I come from the world of film. I love films and games are sort of a secondary thing when, it, as far as entertainment mediums are concerned. But it's interesting to note that, like, because you see a lot of games trying to tell more stories now, but maybe it's worse. It's not the right way to think about it as an evolution of that that particular form of entertainment as more of just growth. Where, like, you are right. Like, if you look at the biggest game, like Minecraft is probably one of the biggest games, if not the biggest game on the planet right now. And there's not the traditional level of storytelling being told there. Yet you have other games. Um, most notably, like I just played Arkham Knight, uh, and I just finished it, and it's te- it tells a phenomenal high level of story. Um, so it's kind of cool. It's cool that they get that. And you're right. In film, there really isn't – we don't have that level of growth with it, right, where there aren't films that can keep a lot of people's attention that are largely visual. Like we crave that story. We crave that one-to-one engagement with the with uh, uh, the characters in the story. And if we don't get that, we get bored immediately and then the phones come out and then I have to yell at people in the theater. And I have yelled at Have people. you yelled at them? Oh, yeah. I got close to it. I'm like, bro, I'm not time. in your damn room right now. Yeah. I'm not. This is not your room. Put your phone away. Yeah. And then people just don't care. People people don't care. I'll be like, stop doing that. And they're like. Pfft. But are you putting on the scary voice or are you just doing it? I just did my dad voice. Hey, put that thing away. <laughs> That's not good. That's not, not good. You got to get up. And you gotta I'm get not going to work on it. Is that you your song? You got to echo throughout the theater. Son of a bitch. That's what I've had to do. I need before. you. So how do you go? I, I want to know. That I, I was wa- mesmerized, by, mesmerized by that conversation. Oh, so it was, <laughs> yeah. it's one of those you always want to do it. Colin, you always want to do it. You want to yell at people in theaters. Everybody wants to yell at somebody Colin in theaters. Colin yelled at someone. What, you just yelled at someone the other day. He just yelled at me earlier. Someone like walked by you the other day the wrong way and like bumped into you and like kept walking. And you're like, no, it's cool. I'm just standing here. 
Don't worry about it. Well, the, the newest thing that I like to do now is to stop the, as we've talked about, is to stop the, uh, oh, the, plane. The, 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 there's no airplane, oh, that's what it, no that's airplane what it was. etiquette anymore. That's what it was. So people just like get up and just start walking forward. Like when the plane gets to the gate, when you're really supposed to wait for people to get off. And so I just like when the plane lands now, I just get up and stand in the middle of the aisle. Yeah. So that no one, no one behind me can and have people, any prayer. And no one will should, say excuse me or anything. You should build a barricade with your suitcase as well. <laughs> yeah. Just prevent anyone from ever leaving. It's all about a lack of etiquette. It when is. people don't have etiquette, holding Society doors breaks open, down. thank you, please and thank you. All it's not that fucking hard. And when you it's don't, not. and when you don't uh, adhere to those protocols, I have to say something about it. I'm sorry, that's just who I am. But yeah. I noticed something about you stopping people in the aisle the other day was that not one person tried to excuse themselves and go around you because they knew they were wrong. They knew you were in the right, and they knew that by saying "excuse me" and trying to push past you, they were going to be even more of an asshole than they, yeah. than they currently were. Someone's got to someone's got to stand up for what's right. I do. Airplane I do. etiquette. Airplane etiquette is so stand up for what's right. It's so important. It's the line in the sand, Christian. It's we the only thing that separates the us from the wolves. It is <laughs> that, and the fact that we have airplanes and the wolves don't have airplanes. Well, but that's that you don't know that. Well, that's I. Well. You've never seen a wolf. Undocumented wolf flights. Camera zooms into the wolves. Just I, like, think it's very, <laughs> I think it's very important. I feel like I've. I mean, we've flown. I don't I mean, know why he's doing this. I've literally flown hundreds of times in my life, especially because my mom worked for Delta when I was a kid. So it's like there that what it wasn't always like that. You know, people right. had respect and got off the plane in an orderly fashion. Got on the plane in an orderly fashion mm-hmm. too. Now everyone's just taking their time, taking up all this space. Just leave, like I don't, society's fucking run amok. And I'm not going to sit here and tolerate it. So no. you're the last defense. I'm the only defense Between that us we have. And chaos. It starts with the planes. Yeah, it starts it really with does. the planes. And it ends with the end of the world. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it there's ends with no, the rapture. No, there's no middle ground either. Just if we, if we let go of the planes, and it's the, the end, end of the world. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. See, you got to get, you got to go from the diaphragm out and be so boisterous that it, it reverberates off all the walls. I don't in have the that in me. I do it all the time. You're all right. so good at it. All right, so I'm curious about one thing because you wrote, you wrote Manhunt, and yeah, that, how do you get from this this weird adventure game nobody's ever heard of in Italy? All the way yeah. to Manhunt. Yeah, because Manhunt. I, I co-wrote Manhunt, but yeah. Oh, okay. Co-wrote I Manhunt. A, I, I co-wrote it. So we want to give credit to your co, you know, your co-writer as well. But this game, I, I remember very clearly playing Manhunt. I was in college. Uh, I played it with my friend uh, Brandon. Uh, it's still, considering the complete volume of games that we've played, it's still one of the darkest and weirdest and most unique games I've ever played. I think yeah. from a storytelling Agreed. perspective. Um, no, I'm sorry. I, that's I apologize. Was right? that the one where yeah, you were in? Okay, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great film, man. Was that the one where you were in the prison, or no? Which which one was Manhunt? It was like you, it was like a snuff film, basically. Where yes, like, okay, yeah. okay. You're and, in the streets of this abandoned city. Okay. So I'm curious, like, w- I'm curious specifically what it was like to write a game like that because that was a I, that game was a big deal when it came out. Not only not only critically and commercially, but it was a big deal because it was fucking really violent. Um, and at that time, we were not we we're still not accustomed. I mean, there's still problems with people with violence with games, but that was really a unique game where it was like you are the you are a serial killer and you're using plastic bags and all sorts of shit to just kill right. people. So what was it like to kind of write that? I mean, was that like a little it weird was, for you? It was fun. It was good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I thought it was, it was fun. We got to hang out more. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think, um, you know, we set out with the idea of getting banned in a couple of countries and, you know, doing the most violent game out there. But um, certainly the idea, and it and it, it, it goes all the way back to conversations that I had with Sam Hauser and... Leslie Benzies, who was the producer over at Rockstar North um, in Scotland, and you know Dan Hauser. It was always let's make a horror game, and and Sam was very particular about wanting to make a horror game that didn't have any zombies, didn't have any monsters, vampires, none of that stuff. It 
you know, I just wanted to make a very grounded, very scary uh, game and a very scary story. And I remember thinking, what are we going to do? <laughs> how, how, do we, how do we do this? And, um, and then having conversations with the guys at Oxford North and, you know, a couple of the very creative people that were working with me very early on in the game was um, Adam Davidson, who was the concept artist, uh, a brilliant mind and a brilliant illustrator, very sort of um, Frank Miller-esque mm -hmm. in his approach to uh, drawing and visualizing. And James Worrell, the co-writer of the story, and we were talking about things and this this idea of like a clockwork orange and how mm. scary that movie can be but how scary it must be to also be the the drunkard you know the the, the bum that gets beaten to death by those hoodlums and mm -hmm. that shot under the overpass and kind of thinking well if you were in your pajamas unleashed in a in a situation like that with with gangs after you that would be pretty scary and um, and kind of it started from there. It started from a place of how can we take something that's very grounded and very real, and 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 really kind of make it um, affect people. And and then of course, you know, we we kind of took it to the extreme level. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. I mean, I love that. I don't know. If yeah, you know, we, no, that was the thing. Where, I mean, like you're saying, you didn't set off with the objective of getting banned in countries. But when I mean, was there ever the conversation of this is going? Is this going too far? Are we kids are going to play this? We're going to play right into Jack Thompson's well, hand. You know, there, there was never, it was, it's never intended to be, uh, you know, given to kids sure, or marketed to kids. And Rockstar is very responsible about that. So it wasn't as much as kids are going to play this, but it's more like um, we, we, we need to keep it. We can only go as far as where it contributes to the story, to the atmosphere, to the, to the world that we're creating. And it's never, you know, gratuitous. Um, we were looking at, you know, video nasties from, from the 80s and that sort of atmosphere and that vibe and that sort of uh, grindcore sort of look. Um, but we never wanted to do the, the slasher film for the sake of having the blood. Flow. Sure. It was just for a stylistic impression of, of the story that we were trying to tell. Gotcha. And, and yeah, you, you don't go out there and say, maybe New Zealand is going to ban the game. Um, you just go there and say, I hope that people that play this game see that we're trying to do something a little more than just, you know, putting a piece of software into a box and kind of having people go and buy it. But we're actually trying to affect them. And um, we were trying to affect them in a more visceral way. So I still feel like we're bearing the lead here. How do you get to Rockstar? Like, how do you get, and like, and like you know what I mean? You're over here. You're in this pasta village. That's all you know how it to make. It was a village That's, made of pasta. Yeah, exactly. you're growing the pasta That's, in the fields. Believe it or yeah. not, Greg, that was racist. Really? I want you to know. Yeah, I don't think you can call... I mean, I'm Italian myself. How many times have you said Mamma Mia? <laughs> <laughs> never. He's probably never out of He just gets up and leaves. <laughs> the like, camera just, every time I want to say it, I just stab myself in the leg. Have you a, hate Mario. You have hate a blade Mario. here, yeah. But Mario no. is my second name. Is it really? No. <laughs> that was racist. No, just <laughs> but no, you go from working on this adventure game where your friends just needed a story or whatever, but then how do you get to Rockstar? And when you get there, do you realize what they're onto? Like what Rockstar is becoming? Well, I was, um, after, after getting into the industry, I kind of got hooked into the sort of the writing and the creative process of making video games. And um, I knew very little going in. 
I was more of a film guy. I'm, I'm really not a very technical programmer type sure. of person. But I kind of saw the potential of the medium and I thought, possibly stupidly, that, um, you know, games are going to be for a director in the new millennium what uh, commercials were in the 70s and music videos in the mm -hmm. 80s and sure, 90s. Sure. Sort of like a, 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 a portal, a launch pad. Or, sure, uh, sure. A, a way to go make movies because making movies is not the easiest job to get. It, you don't go and look on Craigslist. Oh, director, the one I want, I'm going to go and send my resume. Um, so that was my idea to get in. And then as I started working on it, I actually started really appreciating the medium for for what it was and and being really interested and kind of putting my passion for movies aside and wanting to do more video games. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, I was lured into it for one reason and then I fell in love with it. And um, so when I when that game was over, it was a one-stop gig. I started looking for another job, and I ended up working for Ubisoft for for a little bit. And Ubisoft had a studio in Milan, uh, so that was convenient. So I was working there for a bit, and then I moved to Paris for a bit to work uh, with them over there. And then I just figured out that the games that we, I was working on at the time, and again, this was... I think, if I remember correctly, uh, Splinter Cell was just coming out. Okay. The time. So, like the the, Can the Canada studios were just opening. It was like the prehistory of the, of the world. Of the Ubisoft, was, you yeah, know, Ubisoft yeah. was fighting dinosaurs <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> so I was like, okay, the games I was doing were great, but I've always been like a little darker and a little you know edgier in the work I do. And while I was having a great time. And I was learning a lot about gameplay. Um, people there, like Sarah Jasque, who's now their head of creative thinking, uh, whatever wonderful person that gave me my first real job in games, um, he, he taught me about gameplay and he taught me about making games and what it means to kind of build a level and made me build levels and that sort of stuff. And I had no idea. You're like, I just want to write. Yeah, no, you build a level for <laughs> Rayman. Okay. And, and then, so I was working on, on fun games, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my calling. Exactly. And so I was looking for companies that were doing games and were a little more experimental and were a little more like in the world, in the world that I liked. And I uh, remember playing this game uh, called Grand Theft Auto. And it was a top-down kind of little racing game where you would also get out of the car and shoot people. Mm -hmm. And I was playing it when I was working on my first game, my first adventure game, and the programmer was obsessed about it. And he had me play it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is genius. Like, you can do all these things, and it's like uh, a top-down version of Scarface. <laughs> so it was great and, um, and, and very simple. And I heard that the same company, DMA Design, was working on a, on a new version, uh, supposedly a 3D version. And so I remember that when I went and looked online and people were talking about that game, there was a lot of concern and a lot of like, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? They'll never be able to do it. Yeah. I remember a lot of people saying they will never be able to do it in 3D in a city. Oh, come on. And so I wrote, I sent them my resume and I uh, got an interview with DMA Design. And, uh, and I went there and I interviewed and I, I don't know how it went, but at some point somebody asked me, so 
why do you want to come work here? And back at the time, they were in Scotland, in a district of Edinburgh called Leith. Leith is not like the best place to be. <laughs> I think it's like where train spotting is set. Mm. Okay, great. That's, so, good. that's great. Yeah. That's a good, that's so, a good so it was a very safe, very, yeah, right? So why, why do you want to work here? And, and, and I, I remember telling them, because you guys have the balls to make games that nobody else will make. And I think the guy in front of me said, you're hired. That's awesome. <laughs> like right there. Right. And then I was hired and then I ended up working, you know, a little bit on everything that was being cooked up at the time. Manhunt ended up being my main job um, over there be simply because they were putting the team together and I I was good at writing. I was good at, you know, with camera work and it was a very visual game. So I, I gravitated toward that. But I also worked a little bit on GTA 3 and I was there when they were you know, putting it all together and very exciting times. And I, you know, I remember working a little bit uh, and even doing some voiceover <laughs> for that game. Some of the Italian pedestrians imagine why <laughs> ended, up being, ended up being me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, yeah, that game came out and it turned out to be good. And yeah, to say the least. Be... So I mean, because that's the when you got the, like I, what you're talking about is everybody saying they wouldn't be able to do it. That was me. I will never ever forget getting that EGM, opening it up, and they had the first screenshot of guy in a leather jacket in the 3D world, and it said GTA 3. And I was such a GTA 2 fan. I remember looking at that and reading this, and they're like, "It's gonna be open world, and you can do whatever you want." And it's just like the other game, but it's in 3D, and you're like, "That's no way. That's impossible. There's no way a game can do that." Like, so I like that you like. Where I just blew them off, you were like, "I'll go work for them." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw that, and I, you know, I remember those early videos and screenshots, and you would see the leaves that would blow yeah, and the yeah, trash, yeah. and it looked so alive. And I remember, um, I was I was working there for a bit and playing the game a lot, and it was a very collaborative environment. Um, I just remember walking out of the office and walking into the parking lot with a few of the other guys and thinking, am I, am I going to get that car or that car? I mean, you literally walked out of the game and into the real world and you kept thinking about the game sure. and the potential of the game. Sure. And so that, that, was, that was great. And, um, and working on Manhunt was equally great because they were very supportive and you, you could really see that the, the roots of GTA and the roots of Manhunt are into just a genuine desire to create video games that were for an audience and for 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 an audience that loved the games but also that wanted more out of games it, it's easy to forget that before gta 3 and before a lot of what rockstar did games were still kind of in their infancy a little bit in terms of like how the medium was perceived and the stories and the subject matter they sure. could, that they could uh, treat and after gta and I'm going to say Manant, even if I'm just throwing it in there because I'm sitting here at this table. But, you know, it, it was like a watershed moment where all of a sudden games had a completely different credibility. And I think that Rockstar has a lot to... 100%. Deserves a lot because of that. And, you know, after that, you would watch ER and, you know, the doctors had the Rockstar logo on their lockers. So it was like, it, it became a thing. Yeah. And it was mm -hmm. good to be there. Well, and that's what's, I guess, the most fascinating talking about, you know, your time there in particular is the fact that you get there as the rock star I think everybody knows now is born, right? I mean, GTA 3 is the coming out part. My, that's yeah, the, my contract 
that I've kept still says DMA design. Right, and right, right. And as a right. guy made of a D and an M and an A, um, which is also great because DMA design was a great company that has a great history. They made Lemmings, which I played when I was a kid, and Body Harvest and Space Station Silicon Valley. And then it became Rockstar North. Right. And now everybody knows them for the blue Rockstar logo. Yeah, I'm curious, like, because of your heritage there at that kind of embryonic state with, with three and then with Manhunt and then, and then San Andreas, and then you get to work on something like Red Dead as well, which is, you know, an ex- exceptional game, and a lot of people think actually maybe their best game. Um, because of you. Because, because of you. Of course, I you. take complete credit for the entire game. <laughs> I heard, I heard there was a meeting at some point where you were like, let's put horses in this game. And they're like, great, cowboy game with horses. Up until uh, that point, they had motorcycles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, you know it was genius. Yeah, it was motorcycles and cars. I'm curious <laughs> I'm curious if you felt like that. Was, it's kind of validating for you because it's not only... The, by the time Red Dead comes around, ro- the expectations of Rockstar just generally as a as a, as a as an entity, not even just a Rockstar North, is, is through the roof. Um, and yet, they just keep going back to you to write more and more stuff. And that must have felt pretty validating for you, no? Because... At that point, you probably could have written your ticket and gone anywhere that, like, with something like GTA or, or Manhunt on your on your resume. So is um, that, was that kind of cool for you? Well, it was, first of all, it was a great place to work. So I, I don't think that um, you, you didn't just stay there and, and get the credits and then go, oh, I could go everywhere. I mean, it was just uh, it was just great working there. Also, they were sort of at the top of the game. They're sort yeah. of at the top of the game. So, so it's like... But, but, but actually, it's interesting because... Um, the genesis of my move to San Diego to work on Red Dead was actually driven by me having a sort of like uh, moment of questioning my future and uh, and deciding whether the time had come for me to uh, you know go back to my original passion, which was film, or continue to stay in game. And it was literally like, you know, it felt a little bit like Luke and Star Wars going and saying. Hey, uncle, can I can I go to the academy? And uncle saying, no, you need to stay for another harvest. I, I literally went and talked to my uncle at the time, which was uh, Leslie Benz, well, the was producer. Was he on Tatooine? Or? <laughs> it was, yeah. We had moved office to Tatooine. I, I went to talk to the producer of GTA, Leslie Benz, who was, uh, you know, also a personal friend and like a wonderful human being. And um, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. I was kind of like a little lost. In a way, I was finding some creative success in what I was doing, Manant. I wrote the sequel to Manant, but then that was given to another studio. I was working on internal projects at Rockstar that even if they never saw the light of day were very exciting and I can't talk about, but it, you know, it was a great place to be creatively for me. And And because it was so fueled by all these ideas, there was a part of me that was like, what are you doing? Shouldn't you just... Sure. D- didn't just get this whole thing started because you wanted to make films. And and so, at the time, I just really didn't know. And this was 2004, late 2004. And so, I had a conversation, like a very good conversation. And, and basically, Leslie told me, why don't you wait and, you know, do something new, do, do another bigger game, maybe move. We have so many other studios, move somewhere, and um, you know, just y- you're you're obviously passionate about you do what you do, and you you shouldn't just take this decision lightly. 
Um, just look around, see if there is anything that you like. And if you do, you know, come talk to me. And so I started looking at different things that Rockstar was doing um, just to see if I could maybe get a change of scenery. I was thinking of going to London, be closer to like the movie industry over there so I could work on games over there and work on movies, maybe, you know, hang out with the people who make them or go and make cups of tea at the production company and, <laughs> you know, see if I could slide a script under the door somewhere. Um, I started looking at New York where... Um, the headquarters of Rockstar mm -hmm. are, and, um, and then San Diego popped up. And San Diego was in the very early days of the sequel to Red Dead Revolver. And that was going to be like an open world game. And it was called the Old West Project. Probably a good name. It's a great code name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <the laughs> no one could West. ever possibly figure the out The Old it is. West Project. And, you know, I, I just, I remember just seeing a video an internal video of the technology that the guys were building that eventually became like the rage engine and the landscape. And it was just mind boggling. Yeah. Just mind boggling the, the rendering distance where in GTA at times you have to put buildings in the way so that, you know, the cities can stream. These guys were just opening it up and it was like desert and countryside and grass and cloth and rope. And it was like amazing. And and then, you know, not second to that, the fact that it was an opportunity to move to the United States. And that also seemed appealing to me because it was like hitting the big reset button. And I had done it before once. I went from basically Italy and a little bit of France to Scotland. Sure. And that was really good for my life creatively and a good challenge. So I figured that's it. That's That's, that's what I need to do. I need to kind of go over there and get involved with that game. And when I got to San Diego, it was a very, very small team. It was like a skeleton crew. I don't want to say numbers because I could remember it wrong, but maybe there was 15 people working on the game. Damn. And, um, you know, and it was programmers that were like working on it, but also working on like the core technology. And, and I remember that as I joined the team, some really brilliant people got pulled in to work on it as well and became kind of like the, they were building the leadership structure. So Ted Carson became the uh, technical director of the game. And Ted is just a, just a brilliant mind. And Darren Bader was the art director. And Darren Bader <laughs> illustrated like Magic the Gathering cards and covers for like, Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, the guy is a painter and is a wonderful painter. And he would like take screen grabs of the game and paint over them. <laughs> and this is how it looks like. And you go, ah. So, so they were putting together these people and I met them and I, 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 was just, I just felt the home right away. And so I think uh, two or three months later, I was in San Diego and I was thinking, I'm going to work for a couple of years in this game. And then, you know, maybe whatever happens, happens. Then I'll make a couple of short films and I'll go make, maybe shoot a movie. The game took four and a half years to make. <laughs> but was the, was the idea of moving San Diego to get you closer to L.A.? Part of it, definitely. Yeah. There was definitely part of it that was like, I'm going to be closer, I'm gonna be closer to L.A., whatever mm -hmm. happens. But that kind of quickly went away when the potential of what the game could be sort of became apparent. And at the beginning, it wasn't very apparent. It was more like a question of really 
getting that core team together. And when Ted and myself and Darren um, and, and, you know, a few of the other guys kind of really kind of came together and started seeing it, that's when Sam started seeing it and Dan started seeing it. And that's when things got really exciting. And so did you, is that when you knew that this was going to be something like... I never knew that this was going... I never knew that Red Dead was going to be a success. But, but honestly, you never do. Yeah. And I think I had a bet with, with uh, some, some of the guys over there that, that we would sell less than 2 million copies. <laughs> I've lost that bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't for too much money. <laughs> it, it wasn't luckily. Was there, I mean, again, you're there from, I mean, basically as Rockstar becomes rocks, this, you know, the golden boy of Rockstar, like, was there mounting pressure? Or, like, you make it sound so easy. Were they like, eh, go to another studio. No big deal. You know what I mean? Like, was it like that? Or is there, like, intense pressure every day? Like, we well, have to be better than last time. Sh- sure. You, you try, you try, you have pressure. Yeah. You try, you know, also I wasn't running the studio. Sure. I was, you know, on, on the creative leadership of, of one game. And then there's like people that are actually, you know, taking care of the day-to-day sure. lights and everything and hiring people. Um, but anyway, sure, there is pressure. There's pressure all the time. But you try not to think about that and you try to kind of stay focused sure. on what you're doing. And, um, and really just have a, you know, you know, there's a lot of talk about like having a vision or people need to have a vision and, it's all very pretentious and very abstract and sometimes very wrong. But w- what I think at, at the bottom of that, there is, first of all, a need to kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel mm. and kind of being able to say, that's, that's where we're going. And yeah. to keep the tunnel analogy, I also feel like sometimes you're the one with the torch and you're like, and I've got the torch. <laughs> Let's go over there because I think that we're going to be safe over there. And people end up following you because you're the one with the light. Sure. And eventually you get out. So it kind of, sometimes uh, it gets like that. And, and I feel like that's when you feel the pressure. You feel the pressure also because the game is very expensive. I'm not going to get into money talk. Sure, here, sure, sure, sure. But clearly it wasn't, it wasn't a low budget indie, indie game. So you also have people you know, calling you in the middle of the night saying, by the way, <laughs> is this ever going to be done? Yeah, yeah. But, but, um, but also to the credit of... Rockstar and, and the way they do things, um, there was always just a desire for quality and to kind of raise the bar, raise the bar, raise the bar. And, and somebody like Sam will not settle for anything less than the greatest. So if you keep giving him good ideas and a vague promise that they can be done, <laughs> then they have to be done and they have to be done great. Yeah. So in a way... Sometimes if I wanted something to be done, all I needed to do was really just pitch him something and, and make sure that it was um, creatively rewarding and then I would have the support to put it in the game. Gotcha. And so then as, you know, writer of Red Dead, what does that look like when you're going through the tunnel? Is, do you sit down and you guys just make the outline of what the main story arc is going to be and how John's life's going to go? And then is day-to-day trying to think up quests and side quests and how this character interacts or...? Sure. It's for a game like Red Dead, it was also like a big team and you know, Dan Hauser was heavily involved on it. Um uh, Mike Hunsworth, uh, you know, the other people writing the game were all kind of contributing pages and storylines and 
dialogue and scenes. Um, but fundamentally, what what you do when you're stringing it all together is really trying to have, you know, you, you sort of have three different threads in your head, and on, on one you have like the characters of the game that, that you want to. It, great stories come 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 out of great characters, and so the, the focus at the beginning and throughout it is always like how how do we create great characters that players will want to spend time with, and will you know motivate you to do stuff. Um, and then you have the environment, which is basically, especially in games, like a great tool to, to tell the story. You can tell a lot of the story in the way you're building the environment and shaping it, and the things that happen in the environment. And then of course you have like. The, the game part, you have like the toys you're playing with and the character that sure. you control and that also kind of contributes to the narrative in a pretty major way. So you have ideas and everybody in the team has ideas of like, we want to have horses, wild horses, cows, herding, ropes, lassos, wanted posters. So there's all these ideas that are coming up and, and then you have these threads and you're trying to wave together like a ta tapestry, right? And that becomes the job. The job becomes waving it all together gotcha gotcha fascinating yeah it's good stuff i mean i i i guess what i'm curious about now is kind of having really helped pioneer maybe the the new generation of writers writers and writing and games starting with your work at rockstar and all this do you look around the industry now and and, and do you, what games kind of impress you from a writing standpoint i mean i always my mind always goes back to something like bioshock or um, you know some some role playing games. I think like New Vegas was extremely well written. Is, what are what are some of the like standouts to you from your peers? Well, there's a lot of like great writing in games, and there's also great experimentation going on in the indie scene, which mm -hmm. I think is fantastic because that's one of the things that I always dreamed of and never anticipating happening is uh, a really healthy indie scene for games. Um, it's almost healthier than in the film industry, and it's it says a lot. But um, I I I like games that are maybe a little more linear for just looking at the story. Something like The Last of Us for me, for example, yeah. mm -hmm. was like fantastic. Just 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 the way the story was told, the characters, which again, I'll I'll keep saying that, but for me, the characters are everything. Yep. Um, so. So just the way they they put it together was phenomenal, and yeah, I'm 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 a big fan of Fallout, all, all, all the Fallout games, and I've pre-ordered Fallout Four already. Did I'm, you get the Pip Boy edition? I I didn't. I'm sorry. Nerd. I I I, yeah, I, I would can't wait for you to have that on for the first two weeks until it eventually gives you a rash. And then you have to throw I'm not it out the take window. It off. What's going to happen is eventually it's going to wind up at Kevin's house, and then his girlfriend's going to get pissed at us for letting him have no, it. That's not gonna so, was, is there a huge divide in your approach to writing something like a screenplay versus a game? And I know I've asked that question a lot to a lot of people, but what I mean is, is do you diverge greatly from that three act structure, or does that still sort of at the core of any story that you try to tell? Because in in certain instances, you're telling. You're going well beyond the two-hour storytelling of a movie into maybe a twenty or potentially forty or potentially if you're talking Fallout like sixty-hour experience. How do you wrap your head around that, and like where does that even start? Does Those that, are like, like six questions for <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I mean like uh, so no, like, it's fine. Yeah. I mean we've got all day. Um, well, I can start by saying that the, clearly writing a movie and writing a game are different 
uh, different jobs and different beasts. But in the same way that writing a comic book and writing a movie are different. And mm-hmm. and people seem to think that a comic book is a storyboard for a movie, but actually it isn't. And um, And writing television is different than writing a movie. So I, I feel like every... Every medium is in, in unique in, in in itself, and um, you know you you need to kind of learn the strengths and mm-hmm. avoid the weaknesses. Um, so there is also commonalities. Games and movies are visual. Mm-hmm. First of all, they're visual media. Movies have more in common. Pardon me. Movies are have more in common with games than than people would expect. Um, you know, I see a, a more direct parallel between movies and games than games and theater, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And and there's elements that you can bring from games to movies like characters, environment, world building, uh, you know, having having to show rather than rely on, you know, the thoughts of mm-hmm. a character. All those things migrate pretty seamlessly. Right. Um, and the concept of interactivity, which, you know, it's a big word that sometimes we're still figuring out how that affects storytelling, that clearly doesn't apply. But still, that doesn't mean that movies are not interactive. They're just interactive in a different way, like books are interactive in a different way. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that books are interactive because you flip the pages. <laughs> I now. mean that, you know, you have an element of introspection and, and building in your head that, um, you know, happens differently in, in film than it happens in, in a game. In, in a game, maybe you have more agency. And, and in film, you have a little more time to kind of intec- intellectualize some of that mm-hmm. agency. Um, you know, in a, it's a classic example. In a movie, you're trying to second guess the killer. In, in the game, you're actually going after him physically, but you're participating. Right. If you weren't participating in a movie, you would get bored and you would be texting and then Colin would be shouting at you. <laughs> so, um, right? Yeah. That's about right. Yeah, that's it. So, <laughs> in terms of like the three-act structure, mm. that's like a really big conversation for... Um, you know, a lecture more than, a, than an interview, but basically, uh, you know, there's people in film that will tell you, I don't follow the three-act structure. What are you talking about? Um, and I, I'll tell you that Red Dead followed the three-act structure mm-hmm. to the point that the environment was divided in three because we wanted to have a first act in the frontier, a second act in Mexico, and a third act with a resolution and an epilogue mm, okay. uh, in uh, West Elizabeth, what we called the North back in the day. So, um, you know, you can literally, there's different ways to uh, skin the cat, mm. but, but I guess what you want is structure. Fundamentally, you, you can use, uh, you know, Aristotelian poetics or the three-act structure or Sid Field, whatever you want, as long as you kind of tr- have a plan for putting it all together. Mm. And, uh, and if the three-act structure works for you, then it, Ultimately, the goal is to keep it invisible, right? And and just tell a good story. Um, but but every story has a beginning, a middle, and the end, and that's the three act structure. So, 
I don't know. I know we're going long on this topic. I do want to segue over to sort of. I brought him. I brought him here to talk about stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, and so I feel like right. I feel like okay. we can we can just split this into two. So that's totally fine. So yeah, I mean, so then uh, the question is, you know, when you when you're writing a screenplay, right? You can take a look at your sort of dramatic beats per scene, and you can you can tell when you're. You could, I guess it's, I would I would assume it would be easier to tell if a scene's working better in a movie than and and it's gonna, you're going after a certain emotion uh, emotion that you're trying to evoke with that scene or with those characters than it is in a game because you're not necessarily in control of the pacing of how that's going to be given to the audience. How do you how do you rectify that? How do you know that? Or I guess it's just I guess trial and error because I guess with a with a with a game you can go back and kind of kind of fix moments. But how as a writer do you go okay? This is going to hit. This is going to have an emotional impact. And you mentioned The Last of Us, and obviously, like these guys won't shut up about it. I've never played it because I had a, I didn't have a PS3. But um, now, what's your excuse? You got well, a PS4. I got no excuse now. So I went, eventually, <laughs> I will pay. Uh, but how do you know? I and mean, is it the same? And you've now written, obviously. I'm assuming more than one screenplay. You don't. I, I, I'm guessing you didn't come out of the gate being like, "This is the first screenplay I ever wrote. Let's go make another movie." Yeah, that, that was it. I didn't go made and. No. <laughs> so obviously you have experience with that, but but when you're writing the game, like is that the same feeling of like I just wrote this cool thing and I think it's gonna get this emotion across and then it happens, or is there a lot more trial and error to that? Well, first of all, don't think that the screenplay for a minute, don't think that the screenplay is the movie. Because it's not. Right. The screenplay is a map and then there's the road. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So the screenplay is not the movie in the same way that the screenplay for the story in a game is not the game. Or the game design document is not the game. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, these are just tools. The only thing, the only time when something that's on the paper stays on paper is the novel, is the short story. That's when the, the destination matches the the instrument that's been created on and so they are one to one you write a book and you read a book mm-hmm. but when you write a screenplay the screenplay is not the movie the screenplay is one of many steps and building blocks that go into making the movie so actually making the movie requires a screenplay it requires actors it requires sets it requires uh you know, so many sound and music that is not even in the screenplay. And yet, sound and music are, like, so important to a film. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to a game, something like Manhunt. It really came together when Craig Connor and his team started putting in the score and the sound effects. It, it, came f- it went from, this is kind of scary, to this is incredibly terrifying, <laughs> and it sounds horrible. So... Um, you know, it, it, but that's, that stuff is not even on the page. So I guess my way to answer that is that you don't know it until you do it. Right. You don't, you don't know if a game mechanic is going to work until you build it. You don't know if a story beat in a game cutscene is going to work until you're at the very least either pre-vising it or shooting it on a performance capture stage and then going, that's not working. <laughs> do we have the writer here or do we make it up? <laughs> and and in a movie, it, it, it happens on on set. I'm, it, it's, a, it's a big surprise, maybe, but, um, you know, the actors bring so much to the process. The environment brings so much and the director and everybody else brings so much. That at the end of the day, y- you write it, 
step one, you shoot it, so you relight it that way, mm -hmm. and then you edit it, you relight it that way. Mm -hmm. So what, what you get at the end is really um, a, a, a process of different iterations. And I feel like iterating is really key to a lot of art. Painting, sculpture, games, movies, mm -hmm. you kind of... You kind of put it out there and you look at it and you go, yeah, I need a little more over here. I need to sculpt the nose a little better. Mm -hmm. And it and it and it's the same whether you're building the horse, sculpting, you know, the David or making a movie. You just do it. You put it out there, take a step back, you look at it and then you go, now nah, I need to work on the nose a little better. Mm. This might be a good segue into into the film because I, I'm curious about this. Being that you 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 kind of exist in both worlds, you exist in the kind of the gaming realm and then the realm of, of film. This sounds so sci-fi. Uh, it, it is. He it's, exists in both worlds. It's, it is it's, Christian Cantamesa. It is it's Stargate. Um, is there? And I'm curious about this, and I'm not asking you know not that I would know any names anyway, but is there a pretension in film that you kind of made your first film about people that work on games? In other words, is there? If you tell like a film writer or someone who works on film, like, "Oh, I wrote Red Dead. I wrote I wrote these games." Do they, do they, is that something that's taken very seriously in in the film industry? Or is there some sort of like those aren't that's not art? That's those cute. Aren't, yeah, that's, that's cute. Glad we, you came we up make, here to play you with make games, dogs. but we make films. Is there anything like that, or is there kind um, of an understanding of how important storytelling is in games now and how progressive it is? So, I've I've been in the industry for a while, and I can tell you that. At the beginning, maybe five or six years ago, maybe even a little more, the attitude sometimes was like that, sometimes. Um, now, it's absolutely not. Right now, I, every meeting I have and every person I talk to, at the very least, there is um, a sense of interest and respect for uh, a form of entertainment and sometimes uh, an art form that is different. Uh, it, it's nascent. It's you know not even nascent. It's now in its um, you know growing up pains, but um, very very interesting at the least. And a lot of people in Hollywood are just gamers. There's just a lot of people that I go meet, and they're like, you "Big Reg, you worked on a Red Dead? Oh my god!" And 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 it and it's great because maybe they did like. A big movie, and I'm like, you made that movie? Oh my god! <laughs> and then it becomes like a mutual mutual admiration society. But but I, I feel like it's not predominant anymore. There's a lot of new executives. There's a lot of people paying attention, and you know, in general, I feel like it it's it it's better. It, it if not straight good. Um, that said, I feel like games should. Sometimes I see that in games, as ridiculous as it sounds, but sometimes I feel like the television industry and the movie industry are this sort of like slightly more um, open industries to you know other people's ideas mm -hmm. and collaborations mm -hmm. and cross pollination. And sometimes I feel games are the one industry that's becoming a bit of a citadel that is like oh. You're not a you're not a game designer with 25 years of experience. You have no place in this company, and that's why I'm so happy about the indie scene because I feel like a lot of these great ideas are going in there because sometimes the more you know AAA established industry is just entrenched, 
sure. in the way they were doing things. And, and if we look at the history of cinema, that happened to film as well. Like the, the studio system in the 40s and the 30s and 40s and 50s made great films. Casablanca. Boom. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was a citadel. It was very insular. It was impossible to get in and eventually was its own downfall. And, um, and maybe we're kind of bypassing that because there was no indie scene. Sure. So we're, we're maybe bypassing that in games by being smart and doing things that way. And I, and I hope so because, uh, because nobody wants the sort of creative um, stuck in a rut situation. Mm. So now you bring up stuck in a rut, and so like my question for you then: you finish Red Dead, you, you, you got it's your sixty hours of gameplay. Yeah, <laughs> that's how long it took to make, right? Yeah, you finish off Red Dead, and like you know that was kind of like they wanted you to get one more one more year on the moisture farm. So then, like for you, you finish that game, and is it you wanted to go work on another game, which becomes something like Shadow of Mordor, or it was that you wanted to go make movies? No, I, yeah, after Red Dead, I. Um, I left the company yeah. and, you know, I had a desire to kind of change a little bit and uh, do something different. Um, so I, I, I didn't, I didn't do games for, for a bit. Okay. Um, I mean, Red Dead came out in 2011 and uh, Shadow of Mordor came out. Last, last year. year. Yeah. So, mm. so there was a gap you quizzing there. us there? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, I have, very bad memory for these things, but um, and in the meantime, I did some you know game writing here and there, yeah. and I, um, some freelancing here and there. But I fundamentally just focused on film, and I did a bunch of short films, and some were really terrible, and I've buried them with DT in a <laughs> in a in a ditch somewhere. I can't wait for the, the documentary in twenty years digging well, them up. Hopefully, I'll be gone by then. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, whenever they dig them up, and and some of them did better, and yeah. you know, one it's um it, it's the one that kind of got me a little more traction, and uh, between my work in games and my work in with the short films, I got uh, an agent and a manager and all gotcha. that sort of like interesting stuff, and then I wrote Air with Chris Passetto, whom I met working on Red Dead Redemption. Oh, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, oh, it was back a, to Red Dead. He was a designer on the game, and we. And he was another, you know, movie buff and really into sort of writing and making little movies. So I I, I co-wrote a short film with him, um, How I Survived the Zombie Apocalypse, um, and we were, you know, we were really happy with the way it turned out. As happy as you can be with like a ten-minute short film. That yeah. Is, you know, it is what it is, made for no money. But we were, we kind of enjoyed the collaboration and making movies, and we wrote air. We literally wrote the short film, and then we said, oh, how is it going to be like to write something a little bigger, but still kind of contained sure. and still character-driven? And how we survived the zombie apocalypse is a mother and son in the, um, in the zombie apocalypse. And that, was, they, they, that movie came out in 2001, so it's like The Last of Us Free... I we didn't we didn't even look at that. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, uh, we Neil Druckmann ripped you off. I understand. It's a completely different story, but Druckmann, Druckmann again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, completely different. Um, but it, it was like, okay, that was a mother and son, so it's a family. Sure. Um, and then we thought, let's do something with like two best friends. Okay. Two two. two, two. Hold on, don't be stepping on air yet. Let's because this step. topic we're in topic two. 
which is game versus movies. And we're wrapping it up here since you have it both. But so I want to. Oh, you guys is, have a plan? Oh, I I changed it on the go because that's, that's how good I am. For it. Yeah. Well, the the garbage truck is on fire and rolls down the street, and you just kind of our, our blueprints are like an etch a sketch where they just get shaken all yeah. the times, and it just becomes a fucking collage and nothing. So then wrapping this up, the, we're about to, the topic three is going to be air, all about it. So you're working on air, but then you get you start working on Shadows of Mordor as well, which is interesting because it's set in the movie universe. It's like you're back to making now a movie game that is a game that's just in the... You know what I mean? Like, what what pulled you back in? You were out. You were making your movies. I wasn't making air at the time. Um, you know, making a movie is... Easy. We make them every day. Yeah, we're going to have this up exactly in Exactly no like that. You put that over there. Well, we don't even have a guy behind the camera. The, the <laughs> yeah. door is our cameraman right now. Hi, door. It's very slim. Yeah. Very slim cameraman. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that... The, the the lead time from writing a script to actually getting the script made, assuming that it gets made, yeah. which is a big assumption, is at the very least three to five years. Good Lord. So, and, and if you're a film, first-time filmmaker, I mean, if you're Quentin Tarantino, it potentially sure. is much less. But if you're a first-time filmmaker, that could be 10, it could be never, it could be, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So... So we wrote Air, Chris and I wrote Air in 2010. Oh, wow, okay. And then we capped, so that was the first draft. And then we capped, so that was why we were still working on Red Dead. Sure, Mm -hmm. sure, sure, sure. And then we kept kind of putting it away, putting it in a drawer, let's finish, you know, I, I have to finish the game. Yeah. It's kind of taking a lot of time of my life to do that. And then, you know, we want to, you know, rewrite it. And then somebody reads it, and we didn't. I didn't have a presentation at the time, so it was like, "What do we do with this?" Meh, maybe we're just gonna, you know, shoot it ourselves. So we wrote it really small, yeah, that we could shoot it in 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 this place. You're you're welcome to use this place anytime. I wanted to. Thank you. You're gonna have and Kevin then, too if you need to. Yeah, he's gonna be one of the guys. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I'm doing a version with five people. <laughs> and then well, that's and our then, life. If you watch this movie, in many ways, shapes and forms, it mirrors our life. In that one day, Greg. It does not. If I ever get trapped in a room with you. Maybe I should leave now. It's not even topic three yet. (laughs) Right, fine. Jesus Christ. You're the one pushing my buttons. So the idea was to write it, was always to write it to shoot it. Yeah. It it was to write it really small. Had it crossed your mind to say, like, maybe we should try to take this to a couple production companies and see if they just want to buy it outright from us? Or was it always going to be a vehicle for you to kind of propel yourself forward as a director? It was for me to direct and... To be fair with Chris, and to be, I, I mean, I'm hugely, hugely grateful to Chris because we had several opportunities to sell the script mm. to like legitimate production companies that I can't name, but that have big, big directors and sure. And I was always like, Chris, I would like to make this film, and he always supported me. He, he always said, No, let's not just make money. Mm-hmm. Let's try and make the movie. Yeah, which you know, for a friend, is something valuable that you know i respect and i'll be thankful because he always chose let the let's make it avenue as opposed to let's make a quick buck do you feel like that was because taking a step back to your earlier comment you would always you had sort of been traced chasing the dream of film and on some level had put that aside to then go work on the surefire like let's make money this like at rockstar or i never i never worked at rockstar to make money i worked at rockstar because for a very very long time i was and I, in part, I still am hugely in love with video games. Gotcha. And that's still something that I am very, very passionate to this day. Um, 
I feel like it comes a time in your life where you just want to do something different because mm-hmm. you've been doing sure. something for so long that you're a creative person and, you know, if you're painting, sometimes you're like, I can't paint anymore. I need to try something different. Right. And then maybe that something different just leads you back to painting or maybe it leads you somewhere off completely. And gotcha. you guys have changed. Sure. You guys felt oh, the need the to change. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's, that's what, what motivated me. It was never the money. The money is actually... And for a lot of people in, in a lot of industries, and especially people that work on low-budget filmmaking like Air, money is, is really never the motivating factor. Right. Because if money was the factor, we wouldn't have Norman Reedus, we wouldn't have Jaimon Hunt, so we couldn't afford stars of that caliber and of that talent and the money they command in the studio system. They did this movie because they really liked it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Sometimes you have to reason that way. Um, so basically what I was saying is that we decided not to sell the script because we really liked it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and wanted to, to kind of do it ourselves. And then when I ended up having an agent and a manager and a lawyer and all these nice people, then um, they are very nice. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. That's not just a platitude. <laughs> it, 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 it kind of grew. And so we're like in 2012, we're in 2012 and nobody really has seen the script that could make it aside from the people that now represent us and are saying, you know, these is two guys in a garage. It's great, but it's not going to work. And you're not doing, you're not giving enough credit to your story. We need to kind of grow it a little bit Mm -hmm. and put a little more, you know, meat on that bones and make it maybe less of a play and... More of a more of a movie, mm-hmm. and so you're working on it, and working on it, and eventually you get it to the point where it can go and be read by people. And then when it goes and gets read to people, that takes a long time. It takes <laughs> a long time because these people have a lot to read. Right. They're making movies, and when they read it, they kind of go, "Hmm, this would have been great last year, but now we made this other movie that." It's kind of uh, science fiction, so we're not going to make another one. Sure. And so on and so forth. And, and, and it's kind of like that scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where all the planets need to align mm-hmm. to the monolith. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And for air, that did happen when the script and my, I believe my short first, it's just uh, very confusing, but I believe my short first landed on Robert Kirkman's desk um, at the time when I was changing a representation, uh, you know, one of these things where people come and go in the industry. And um, my short film landed on his desk. The script landed on his desk and his business partner, David Alpert, who was also producer on The Walking Dead, and David was kind of like, I don't really think we need to see a zombie short film i think we kind of got the zombies down <laughs> and um and then for some bizarre reason they clicked and they linked and they watched it and they they liked it and they were like oh is there a script and the script was not about zombies it was about it was there yeah and they read it and they liked it and you know when robert and david alpert like something and you have a meeting with them and they kind of like you, then, you know, things start 
start moving. You finally get traction on this idea yeah. that you've been pushing for years and years and kicking yeah. around and doing all this different stuff. Yeah. So now we've moved into the air topic. I want you to know that. <sighs> so, ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching this on Patreon, air is available Friday. You might be catching this on Thursday. So Friday, it is available. If you're watching it on YouTube, guess what, everybody? It's available right now. Go see it in theaters or download it. What is, now that we've caught up in the story... They and have, when he says download it, it doesn't mean pirate it. Don't pirate it. He says buy no, it. You know how our, I feel about pirating things. Our, our best friends out there don't pirate things. They will support. They know. Thank you. Links are in the description. That. Links are in the description. We all, we all do that. We have, we're, we're, we're dead set against piracy here. Unless you're talking about Going actual after piracy. That booty! I was like, you beat me to Damn, it. Damn, I thought we were doing it. It was going to be a there. walk. Right, Carl? Right, Carl? You nailed it. Booty. Booty. No, booty. I I booty, 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 booty. Double entendre. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's a Thank double you. entendre. For the folks who are watching now, they've clicked on this to find out about how you made a movie with Norman Reedus. What is air? What's the elevator pitch? Because in the timeline of your story right now, script's in front of DA. Robert Kirkman's looking at it. What is the script? What is air? So air is a confined science fiction thriller. Um, it, it's, a, it's in the post-apocalyptic genre. And it's basically... The story of two uh, custodians of mankind in this underground Noah's Ark, where the best minds are kept in the in the hope of preserving society once the planet's surface becomes uh, habitable again, and um, they they wake up for six months. They wake up for two hours every six months to uh, maintain the facility, and uh, as they prepare to go back to sleep, uh, something horrible happens. And it becomes the story of these two guys that have this huge responsibility and um, um, how they're going to cope with their problems. And, um, and are they going to be best friends or are they going to become worst enemies? And what lines are you willing to cross for your survival? Mm -hmm. And where is your survival more important than the survival of the human race? So a lot of different questions. It's a sci-fi story. It's a sci-fi uh, genre movie, but we also like to think that it's a character um, piece at heart. Sure. sure. Um, well, I think that goes back to what you're talking about, right? Because you're talking about it's this when you were talking about it leading up to it that you wanted to. This could be shot. It could have been shot without a studio. It could have been shot with any backers. It could have been shot in this room because it is these two guys. Like ninety-five percent of the movie, right? Like. That's, I think, one of the things I found so interesting about mm. it is the fact that you're able to jump in and it doesn't feel like I'm trying to keep up with who all these people are from the get-go. I know who these guys are. I know the stakes. And it's just this... It almost felt theatrical. Like, like I was watching a play in a way, right? Because it is this smaller show of them interacting with each other and just relationships. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that struck me by it was that it's very, very difficult to do sci-fi in general. It's incredibly difficult and not a lot of people can actually pull up doing a sci-fi indie film. Uh, largely because of the, the the monetary demands that most sci-fi uh, have to have in order for it to be a believable universe. But what you guys have done and what I really respect, anyone that's out there that, that has studied film, um, you guys have taken the idea of the indie, like the one room indie. And they always say if you want to you know, you make your money stretch, you have two actors in one room. And you guys have kind of turned that on its head and turned it into a sci-fi film, which is really, really cool. And it's backed up by really strong visuals. And the thing that really struck me was the music in it, which I thought was reminiscent of, and I mean this as an actual absolute compliment because it was very nostalgic for me, um, kind of early Carpenter stuff, right? Um, nailed it, like right, 
<laughs> I, I was like, this I'll remind- send you a vinyl of the soundtrack. Please do. And I, and <laughs> I actually and have them. It hit me with such a wave of like, oh my God, it is 19, like 85. And yeah. I'm watching Escape from New York for the first time, or I'm watching The Thing um, specifically of like these people that are trapped in the situation. They can't get out of it and have to figure they have to survive. Um, and so that was really, really cool for me. And, and not only that, but you had, you had the, uh, I don't know, uh, I guess good fortune, and I want to get into how you sort of got uh, Norman and, and um, Jaiman on, on board for this. But you had two great actors involved in it, which, as anyone else will will tell you, that's the third element that you pretty much need to <laughs> to to tell a story with two actors is two great actors or two characters is two great actors. So, who first of all, kind of taking a step back, who shot this film for you? Uh, the cinematographer is the director of photography is Norm Lee. Okay, and he's a genius. A genius cinematographer mm-hmm. from Vancouver in Canada. And how did you sort of uh, get associated with him? Is he someone that you knew before? So or? the way it works in film is that, um, well, a lot of filmmakers work with people they know, mm-hmm. cinematographers or directors of photography that they have worked in the past. And me being a first-time director, that problem is solved <laughs> because I've done my short films, mm-hmm. but um, this, you know, this movie needing to be shot in Canada and also kind of having a, a certain, you know, cachet in terms of like talent involved and everything. It was important to shoot it with a certain aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so that became like one of the re- one of the criteria. I really wanted to work with somebody that could nail that sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s look, the thing, Alien, Escape from New York, Blade Runner, those are the gritty, dark movies mm-hmm. that I reference when I talk about the film. Um, in a way, our brother in in storytelling, Moon, mm-hmm. is more like Solaris to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and we are kind of maybe the grittier, darker underbelly of that mm-hmm. sort of filmmaking, more like the thing, sure. more like that sort of stuff. Um, the John Carpenter score, mm-hmm. and uh, and so there was a few options on the table, and um, and I watched this film completely independently from the search for a DP called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Mm. Um, oh yeah, I've, I've, okay, I've heard of that. Oh my god, that I, I, I'm, I don't ask me about the story because. I'm still trying to, you know, it's like the Hellraiser puzzle. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still trying to open it. But the visuals were unbelievable. Got it, okay. Unbelievable. And I was mesmerized. I, I think I watched it twice. Just because of the, I, the second time I just switched the audio off. And, and, and then when I had like a, a few interviews with uh, uh, DPs in Canada, Norm Lee popped up and he was the DP of Beyond the Black Rainbow. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to meet with him. Even if he didn't work out and he wanted too much money or sure. he was suddenly turned blind, <laughs> I would I, I would still want to meet him. Suddenly blind. <laughs> but you never know. I know. Huh. But and then it turned out that he really liked the script. He was really passionate about it. He had a really uh, you know, we shared a common vision for what the film would look like. And um, I had done a, I always do a visual presentation for, 
for my movies where I, I just visualize it with, with images that mm -hmm. I go and I filter from, you know, from the internet. And a lot of people will do that with movies and I tend to do it with uh, photographs that I find of like real places mm -hmm. and details of things, um, art. And so I showed him my collage and my collection of uh, images that I used as reference for uh, for air. And there was also a lot of like Cold War bunkers, and mm -hmm. and he was thinking the same thing. So um, I think one of the producer wrote to the rest of the producers that he had to pry us apart to end <laughs> the meeting yeah. and kind of uh, move on with the rest of. Uh, of the rest of the day, with the rest of the day that, that we had planned. So that was love at first sight. And, um, and, he, and he ended up shooting the whole thing, of course. And then moving forward, you found obviously someone phenomenal for the, the soundtrack of the film or the actual score of the film, rather, I should say. And how did, who is that person? That person is Edo van Bremen. And there isn't a better name for a composer. <laughs> and funny. it's his when real name. you have name. that name, you have to be a composer. It's That's his real name. And, um, you know, Edo is a musician from from Canada. Mm -hmm. um, super talented. He um, plays in a number of bands. I wish I remembered all the names, but it, it clearly the are, Beatles, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones. Right? Yeah. He's in both. Maybe you've heard of either. Um, yeah. And uh, but people can look him up. Um, certainly, I think this was his first feature film. Certainly, won't be his last. No, it won't be. And um, and it was just a it was just a fun process because. I had a pretty clear idea of the music that I um, wanted to have in the mm -hmm. film because it's the music I, it's the music I like, and believe it or not, and believe it or not, the music I listen to, not just the soundtracks, but I'm like huge into uh, John Carpenter and mm -hmm. like '80s electronica and sort of like '70s Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. so. That was my sound. It's that, it's that sound that really evokes emotion. It's that sound that you just kind of close your eyes to and imagery just starts popping mm -hmm. through your brain, right? And it's, uh, it's, it's yeah, I mean, the, the film, I think, aside from the, the strong storytelling, is actually worth it just for the soundtrack alone if you are a huge 80s sci-fi film buff because you will literally close your eyes and be like, I think I'm six years old again <laughs> and terrified of watching this thing that's going to kill this other actor on screen. Um, so... Let's let's kind of dive into it a little bit, though. You were mentioning we were talking out there that you originally wanted to shoot this on film. Um, what was the what was the thought process behind that, and then why did you segue over to digital? Well, it, first of all, as a, as a filmmaker, there is always that sort of hidden desire to kind of shoot it with the with the format and with the you know with the celluloid that has been used. Was in that a so big many... thing for you for your first film? Were you like, I have to have this as a as sort of a well, actually, believe it or not, I shot a short in thirty-five millimeter oh, okay, film okay. just to, so you just have to acquaint in myself to it, with yeah. it, and um, and it was fun and it looks great and uh, you know, but it was impractical even for the short film, mm -hmm. um, and and Kodak donated the film to me to make that short, so I didn't even have to pay for the stock, I just had to pay for the development, the processing, yeah. like wonderful, a wonderful company, there's a lot of wonderful companies out there that will actually help filmmakers, um, seems like funny and unbelievable and somebody that's saying it to pimp the industry, but actually there's companies out there that are really willing, if you have, if you have good ideas and you're articulate, people will try to help you make movies, because, because 
these tend to gain, but also because it's what it's it's an art form for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it, but but to go back to your question, it was very 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 quickly uh, realized by everybody everybody involved that that the film wouldn't work, mm-hmm. and it's both a question of it's becoming impractical to to use film outside of certain cities mm-hmm. where you can get it developed or clearly we're talking about low budget indie film sure. because if you're if you have unlimited resources or very large well, even uh, on huge coffers. studio films, though, that's that's still an issue, right? It's because you were, we were talking out there, and you were saying that you shot the film up in Vancouver, and there wasn't even a uh, there there were no uh, facilities to actually develop the yeah, dailies the f- for you. Yeah, the, the facilities to which develop I find ridiculous for or, Vancouver, yeah, where everything's being going shot. Away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I and I and to be fair, I don't completely remember if the facility. I think it doesn't even exist anymore, or if it did exist, it was basically working for another production mm-hmm. and they could only do one movie. It, it either doesn't exist or They're it's very specialty. Up. Yeah. Very specialty. It's so, so I, I don't want to, you know, mislead our Canadian audience members that then will bombard us with emails saying, no, oh, you can go here and get My dad film. runs a My, place that develops yeah, film. But I, but I remember that it was a logistical, uh, impediment to it, sure. as well as a budgetary uh, concern, because clearly um, your your shooting ratio, which is how much you're shooting versus how much you're going to use, mm-hmm. becomes much more controlled, um, as opposed to digital, which gives you shooting ratio um, flexibility, right. if you can. If you can afford it with the time of the day, you can afford it with the digital cameras. With film, you you need to plan for your shooting ratio, otherwise you run out of film. And right. Or you have to switch out. mags right between a, an emotional moment. It, like, well, you, I just ruined it's this It's a take. disaster. Yeah. Right. So, so just for you guys, for your edification. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, Where are the Are you chirons? familiar with film? I, I've You've seen heard this it term in history before. books. Yeah, so, good. So, yeah, I mean, so obviously it's, it's becoming harder and harder to sure. actually acquire a film, a movie on film. And one of the things that is great about the digital medium is that obviously we've been this is a smaller camera it doesn't not quite as expensive as nope, the red epic that he like shot this. on um, but you know we've been going for an hour and 22 minutes whereas traditional film magazines would only last about 10 minutes oh, roughly damn. and so if Jeez you're in the middle of a very long scene like your your opening shot of the film is beautiful I believe if I'm not mistaken it's it's one long take of uh, Norman Reedus waking up and sort of ha- well hacking up along because of the air mixture that he's been having ha- forced to breathe for six months has been a little bit on the thin side um, thanks to the nuclear holocaust um and, uh, you know, we follow him and even that shot, which I can just imagine, um, you must have done more than once would have been very expensive to, to do <laughs> on film. So, uh, it's a four minute shot, four minute. Yeah. yeah. So that's, and it was, yeah. it's very cool and it very yeah, and much, it's not unedited four minutes. So. No. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, what I like about it is it sets the tone for what you're about to see, right? Which is like, we're here. This is where this world is going to exist. This is, this is everything until something makes us something happens you know go outside of this um and and that's very very well set up um so then where was the choice was it norm's choice to shoot with the red epic yeah ultimately the choice of camera has to be the dp's right choice because it's his tool mm-hmm. um it, it was also a conversation and there's so many good cameras out there these days that you just you just want to you just want to get something that 
has the right look mm-hmm. and the right feel and the right resolution. We shot anamorphic. Uh, and that was going to be my next question because it looked like it was anamorphic. We shot anamorphic, and it's not just anamorphic, but we shot with vintage lenses yeah. to which, get which the look and feel. Remember? We used the arc vantage. Okay. Um, there's only three sets of those lenses in the world, I believe. I want you to know, this is the nerdiest Nick's ever been on this show, and I love it. <laughs> what lenses you? Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, well, Nick went to, you know, Nick, Nick studied film, I, and no, so he's I in this. It. That's why you yeah. and I are sitting back. I I'm just enjoying want to no, this. Is, awesome. I, I read a lot about this, right, because oh, I read the American Cinematographer magazine, and they talk a lot about how they're... You know, one of the one of the uh, the differences between I mean, there is there are stark differences between film and digital, right? And uh, one of them is that digital is very, very, very clean look. Obviously, that's the whole point. It is the antithesis of an actual organic piece of film that is going through sure. um, a shutter. And so, oftentimes, what DPs will do is they'll have a particular lens that adds a specific look to it that might, might soften the film or give it, in this case. Um, uh, these beautiful lens flares that will happen every once in a while because sure. you're shooting anamorphic, and so you get you get the sort of and pardon pardon the parlance, but the John McTiernan die hard like shh, beautiful lens flare that will yeah. pop up every once in a while, which for sci-fi and for this world really sells that um, concept. And you guys were able to get a lot of that look uh, in in the camera, which was great. I'm not sure how much all, of it. All of it. Oh, it was all of it. Okay, all that was going to be a question no, too. There's no VFX flares of any kind. So, like, as opposed to J.J. Abrams, where there would just be... Well, actually, he did a lot of it in Lens, too, but then there would be a lot backed up where there's just constant flares sure, happening all sure, over the sure, place. Sure. And you're like, Jesus, back the flares off, bro. I want to see Kirk's skin. Um, so then you mentioned you that it. you shot this in 19 days. But you say that? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, he did. He has the whole thing about Thor's abs and... Okay. Chris Pine is a beautiful human being. I'm not saying you're I gonna, don't wanna... If you're going to put Chris Pine in a film, okay, don't cover him with lens flares is all I'm saying, J.J., because J.J. Abrams really loves his podcast. Here's, I know, he's watching. He's his son, his right son big Nolan North fan, so I'm sure that c- comes right over to Colin and Greg. Great, and perfect, perfect. Before, yeah, you want to talk about how it was shot. Yeah. I want to I get to a specific point. We So far in the original timeline, the script was on Robert and DA's desk. They were like, we're in. Skybound is going to be your producer on this and do all this stuff for you. I, it, w- the thing we keep jumping, and you said in one of the earlier ones of like, you know, you get a Norman, you get Jaimon, you get all these people who are going to work for less money. Does... Does, does that like when do, do they sit you down like we love your film we want to work with it who are you thinking of casting and you're like I have whoever we can get and they're like oh well we'll give you Norman Reedus like how does that work uh yeah it doesn't work that way <laughs> <laughs> we'll <laughs> give you Norman Reedus Kirkman's like he owes me his career pretty much Boondock Saints I know well you know when he hangs up the phone on him <laughs> well there's an element there's an element of um you know the producers and the agents and all that sort of playing a role but Fundamentally, so we left the story at David Alpert and Robert Kirkman kind of liking the project yeah. and me and Chris Pesetta enough to kind of, um, you know, dignify us with a meeting and then um, saying that they wanted to be on board. They had notes for the script to kind of make it better, which, uh, you know, clearly Robert and David Alpert know a couple of things about story. It was primarily like the third act and um, little things that we were very happy to, you know, writing is really sure. writing. And then, um, then, this, then they brought on board two other amazing producers, um, Brian Kavanaugh Jones, who is uh, uh, the executive producer of the Insidious franchise. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And um, the producer of Sinister and a lot of other great movies is just uh, finished, I believe. Midnight Special. Gotcha. Um, anyway, 
Brian Cavanaugh Jones uh, came on board with this company, Automatic, and with them, the Canadian producer Chris Ferguson, who's now like one of my best friends and um, like a like a great great guy, like a filmmaker himself. That he's you know been in the trenches for so long that he's like I feel like he fought his way out of them. <laughs> um, and so these these producers came on board. And and I believe for for a certain amount of time the ball was with them in terms of like getting the movie going. Sure. Because that's what the producers people go, what do the producers do in a movie? Well, first of all, they really help to get the script together. And then they really help to get the script financed. <laughs> which is not like a small thing. And so um they they got the they got the financial resources together mm-hmm. um, for us to make the movie and eventually got so- Sony Stage 6 involved to uh, release it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so that's that's how we went in terms of like finally having a movie that is not just a pile of paper on a, on a, sure, 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 sure. On a table. Um, and then you begin casting and casting is... It you know casting is another whole adventure, and you just hope that you get you know the people that are going to be great for the part, that are going to make you know the movie what it needs to be, that are available in the window that that you have to mm-hmm. shoot, and and that you line them up before the movie just lose loses momentum, and then you know people just go and do other things, so. In in a certain way, it takes time, and in another, it kind of is when you know if you have a movie or if you don't. And uh, the first the first actor that we cast was Norman Reedus. That's and a good way to was, start. Yeah, it was a it was a conversation. It was a very easy conversation because uh, you know the name came up, and um, when when the name came up, I I believe everybody was like, this this could be great. And I loved The Walking Dead. And when I saw him come on in the first season of The Walking Dead, I just felt like the show had taken on like a whole new dimension. He's great. Yeah. And um, so I I chatted with him on Skype and he read the script and he had like questions for me. And we we considered what kind of um, character he he would be uh, good in. And I believe we... um, I felt very strongly that it would it would be the best Bauer mm-hmm. that we could ever have, and uh, he he was uh, you know agreeing with me, so we cast him. He he said yes, and that was like a big a big moment for me personally because now there was somebody you know you can be validated when your script when your producers say we're gonna try and find some money for your movie, <laughs> but when an actor and a really good actor says, I like the material enough to do it and take a chance on it and maybe even say no to another couple of things mm-hmm. that could potentially maybe even pay me more to do this. This is when, you know, first of all, you know the the artistic and moral fiber of these people that are so committed to their art that are like, yeah, I, 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 mean, I sometimes just want to do something for, for my acting. Right. And, um, and also it was like great, because it gave me, it gave me confidence and gave the film momentum, and that's what we needed. Because then, I feel like 
Norman did the last final push of this snowball up the little cliff, and mm-hmm. then the thing just start go, started going down because of a little show called The Walking Dead. <laughs> and I, f- I think I've heard of that. And we had Norman in a window from the end of The Walking Dead to when he needs to shoot The Walking Dead again. Mm-hmm. So that was when this movie the has movie to needed to happen. Yeah. Right. And that, that was the best thing that could happen because that kind of got everybody like really focused, really going. And, uh, and then we had more conversations and more creative meetings, more names on the table. And then I don't remember where the name of Jaimon Hansu um, appeared. Um, but, and you know, the character wasn't initially um, written for somebody that has his stature mm-hmm. and his, you know, sort of like physical presence. And I, you know, I, I already read the script and, and watched the movie, and I cannot imagine the film without Jaimon Ansu in it. He, like, yeah, he's it's great. impossible he's so for me to not think of that character and not immediately think of Jaimon Ansu. And that's just how amazing he is. He's so amazing that he has taken a part and he has completely transformed into something that cannot be separated from the movie. Yeah, so, he's. Uh, a, I mean, he was fascinating casting for the role too, because he has he does have a great physical presence, um, and he plays the more timid of the two characters, which I thought was cool. And he's a very, and, and as far as Norman Reedus is concerned, he is he's a very subtle actor. And that and, and I've I've watched The Walking Dead. Greg got me into it at first. I wasn't I wasn't uh, um, at first the season the the first few episodes I had watched didn't really vibe with me, but now realizing what that show is that show is a slow burn that show is watching these characters really 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 strong character development and watching them evolve over the span of you know an entire season and years um and so when you know i read the concept for the film and then saw that norman reedus and i was like this 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 is going to be cool this is going to be a fun like subtle like character study of what these two human beings are in this situation are going to do um and that's exactly what you've delivered with it so um, was it was there a moment when you were like after you cast both of them and you were like fuck yeah like hey, this is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be kind of dope. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was not there psychologically at the time. Psychologically, I was more like, like keep going. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was more like curved into a ball, trying to not be terrified by the fact that you know all this was happening, and um, you know all of a sudden you're responsible for. The, the money that mm-hmm. is given to you to make this film, um, these actors, I'm not going to say these actors' careers because I don't think any, I could have put them naked in front of the camera and it would have done nothing to their careers. Spoilers, there is than, one scene where they're naked, no, I'm joking. Than, you know, <laughs> they, would have been, they would have been amazing even sure. you know, in the direst of circumstances, but I feel like uh, there is a sense of responsibility that sure, comes with sure, now, sure. all of a sudden making a movie. And, and also the fact that we had very limited amount of time to prep it and shoot it mm-hmm. and very limited money to, to do it. That were kind of like my concerns. Also, I was uh, as ridiculous as it sounds. I was coming from a world of entertainment and video games are part of that world of entertainment where budget was never a concern. I was coming off the shoot, the performance capture shoot for uh, shadow of Mordor, which uh, I, I directed all the cinematics for. Mm. Um, so I, I worked with like Troy Baker and Nolan North and some of Never heard favorite. of it. Yeah. 
So you've worked they'll with Hugh, G- you've worked with Hugh G- Goes before. They'll deny. <laughs> they'll deny that I ever existed. Um, so, you know, I was coming off very different uh, sort of like dollar figure situations. Sure. Sure. And uh, and so I I also felt sort of like the need to kind of reconfigure some of my thinking in terms of okay, this has to happen in in a matter of minutes, not in a matter of hours. Sure. Right. And then so was that as I imagine that's just added pressure on top of your shoulders of something. All those constraints really do create the perfect pressure cooker for especially a first time director to exist in. Well but you you know you need um, you need pressure. You know, sometimes you need pressure. They say that you need pressure to make diamonds, and I don't want people to think that this movie is a diamond because it's really rough around a lot of mm-hmm. the edges. It's a diamond in the rough. But but it, it pressure is certainly... Good yeah. job, Greg. Uh, you got to reward them for the good stuff and the bad stuff, too. That's how we do that it. That was here. a good thing, though, right? That was all right. All right, good. Yeah, all right. That, how'd you know that shoulder was hurting? Good job. You always, that's where you keep all your attention. Oh, I tell you what, Colin, he's got the magic fingers. I know. Colin knows. We've been in a room alone together. Colin has been very quiet for a very long time. I we need like, to have him. To I just say like something. listening. Colin and is you guys keep interrupting. An active him. listener. No, we're, we're adding to the conversation, actually, Colin. We're adding to the com- conversation. <laughs> we're keeping I the flow listening. of the conversation. I like listening to his stories, and I especially like listening to stories of things I don't really understand. So I am an active listener. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just enjoying it. So now we've caught back up. To Nick's original, where he was taking you. You had to film this movie in fewer than 20 days. And according to Norman Reedus, when I interviewed him at Comic-Con, you did it underground. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? How does that happen? That's, a, that's fast for a movie, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yes, that is fast <laughs> for a movie. I mean, especially for a sci-fi film, and especially for a sci-fi film that looks this good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, take us to where Where did you end up filming this? What was the location? You said you filmed it practically on, on location. Yeah, we filmed it on location in Vancouver, um, what, the whole city what is loca- Yeah, I was going to say, what location did you manage to find? And we just went completely underground in Vancouver. <laughs> well, um, we, we just had to, we, we had like some great location scouts that, mm-hmm. you know, lo- location supervisors and managers and scouts. And um, in, in the very limited amount of time that we had to kind of go and find places, uh, we found some pretty amazing, abandoned, deadly uh, inhospitable in environments in which to shoot. Um, Vancouver. Which, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, an abandoned power plant. Um, so under an abandoned power plant, because mm-hmm. clearly the power plant has all the structural elements yeah. that they need to build underneath. Um, and so some of the scenes are in under a power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a power station, sorry. We filmed in an abandoned in an abandoned factory. Um, that was not pleasant. And uh, <laughs> so and, in a, and in a mine, we, we filmed in a in an abandoned mine. And we in in every location we built, Brian Kane, the production designer and his crew, mm-hmm. had the wonderful and admirable job of going in there and building sets mm-hmm. or pieces of sets into these amazingly unfriendly, cold uh, environments without power, without heat, without, and they brought everything. So we would go in there, and there would be a resemblance of breathable air. There would be warmth at times, and there would certainly be light and electricity. And when, they, when we went for the scout, every single time, I was wearing a Navatic Exploration Parker <laughs> with a beanie hat. Right. Uh, sometimes a respirator and a flashlight because there really? was no electricity, no nothing. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. And so, was there the was was there any safety mechanisms put in place? Oh for, yeah, for the, absolutely. Yeah, so they had one yeah. canary. That was it. Yeah. And they were like, he's no, dead again. Get well, out. get us another damn canary. Why does he keep fucking dying? Stop getting me all these the faulty lo- canaries. All the locations were clearly, um, you know, cleared. Right. Um, for smart. For, I hope so. For the shoot because yeah. I really like The Walking Dead. It would be a shame if Norman Reedus yeah. died no, prematurely. No, no. It was. It was. Uh, it was. Everything was uh, safe to be in. It was just. Um, just where they were. Right. It was kind of, uh, you know, hard. Sure. Right. It was kind of hard to, um, you know, you go, you go in an abandoned mine and it's not like the place itself is going to kill you. It's not going to cave because there's like safety measure after safety measure after safety measure and the film commission has approved it and we've done our own right. clearing and we've measured the air and... You know, and then you go in there, and it's freezing it's cold, cold, and yeah. it's raining inside. And so our <laughs> construction crew, and this is like, you know, 30, 40 feet below ground, and our construction crew is going in there building the set, mm-hmm. and it's raining on them and on the set, and I'm there going, put a light over there because there's this water dripping, and I want to make sure that we can see it on film because right. to do that on a soundstage would be really expensive. You would have to run all the water and make it drip and you make the irrigation set wet and, 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 stuff, yeah. and I've got that film it right 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 so right, you got free so, wet down which is nice yeah. I like your mentality yeah I'd be like it's raining on all the equipment well oh. we, we, we would put like a plastic over the camera well, sure yeah we had very sophisticated means of keeping it dry <laughs> they're, called, they're called trash bag. bags yeah. Um, yeah but that's what's that did you tap me on the shoulder did, did you need me to stop no you're doing great okay you tell me to shut up, and I'll talk all day. I, so at some point, just immediately great. wrap up the show, and I'll make sure that we shut up. kill the canary. Um, so then you're done. Who talk to me about the post process? So how long did it take? What there were? There's a fair amount of visual effects work being done, as far as some set extensions, um, which I have to imagine, unless you guys had an amazing jib and you ended up finding that. Don't awesome spoil facility. the movie. Yeah, okay, okay, sorry, but um, but uh, jib shot everybody. So <laughs> what? So how long how long did post take and and where did that happen at? Uh we had very very limited VFX in the film. Mm-hmm. Um and I, again I don't want to spoil it to the audience but um there is there's only literally three shots. That's right. That are that are VFX. Everything else is either practical or there is some um minor augmentation in terms sure. of like maybe particles right, and, right, right. um you know that sort of stuff. Um, so VFX took, took, took maybe a couple of months or so, but not, not nothing comparable to what it would take to do Iron Man or right, that right. sort of stuff. Um, all the post was done in Vancouver. Um, I think, I believe the process started in, uh, May and ended in October. So. Okay. May, June, July, August. <laughs> so bad. about, about six months. Uh, and, and were you there the whole time for that, or was that more of a working remotely? Oh, no, no, I was there. I so was you're in there. the room, you're editing the editing bed yeah, the whole yeah, time. Yeah, I was there editing, together. and amazing editor, Greg Nig, mm. fantastic. He, um, he edited another movie for um, the same producers, the automatic company called mm. uh, Afflicted. Afflicted is sort of like a found footage vampire okay. movie. And, and and the guy is just is just like masterful like he's really really good and i'm sure he'll do a lot of like movies because he's just as an eye for 
well, he has a rhythm mm -hmm. for the scene, and also he has an eye for things that you wouldn't think would match, right. and then he cuts them together and they match. And um, it was a pleasure working with him. Very good storytelling, which is what you want from an editor, because mm -hmm. you want another uh, you want another rewrite of the film. So, like I said, you write it, and mm -hmm. then when you shoot it, you basically rewrite it, because now you have the actors, you have their ideas, you have the DP, you have his ideas, you have your new ideas, because now you're in an abandoned mine right, right. and now and you want to see the water <laughs> um and then and then you have um the editing room and the editing room is another great place where you can see the movie you can go what happens if we take this and kind of move it over here um how, how is the how is the movie behaving mm -hmm. if we do that and you, you just get another shot and um and then it, it's it's another it's it's a great way for the producers who are in my opinion the first audience. If if you have good producers and good executive producers, and the producers of Air were amazing to me and for me, and the people at Sony that uh, the executives on my movie were also not only incredibly supportive but amazing to work with, with great taste, and they get to be the first audience. And every good director, in my opinion, listens to his first audience of producers and executive producers, and they will come back with what's called like the studio notes mm -hmm. and the producer's notes. And, and they're just a treasure trove, not of solutions. Sometimes these guys can have pretty good ideas. But even if the idea is not something that maybe you would think it's um, in line with what you're thinking, the entire problem that they have identified and the need for them to suggest a solution is just an alarm bell. Mm -hmm. For you, it's just a big spotlight. Sure, this is. Please look at that. Right, right, right. And here is, and, and here is a freebie idea for us trying to help you. No, are you no. making signs? Just no. Uh, I'm saying here's a freebie idea. I'm sharing. No, like, we're giving no, people no, inside look at how it's happening. Greg, Greg, Greg does that. I look at the thing. camera. I address the people every so often. It's, it's I, I co-host a show with him every day. Does it, it confuses the shit out of me? We've been doing it for like you know co-hosting things sixty so, years for, 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 for seven years. Uh, I do have a question though on this. I think this is an interesting, interesting point to what you were actually saying about getting notes and kind of listening to feedback. Is you know, I come from a writing background, but I, I feel like I'm very independent with it in the sense of I write and I have people edit my stuff and, and look at it, but I also feel a little bit controlling over my ideas. And I'm like, I don't know that you're necessarily right about what you're, you know, like the intent of what you're. Sure. Um, and obviously, you've had a very a collaborative experience many times making games at Rockstar, etc. So I mean, you've already kind of been to that background. But is it weird? taking your idea and your script and then be, and then really having to trust that everyone else is going to have to execute on this and you're going to have to just kind of trust them. I, I know that these people obviously have talent and a resume that you look at and you're like, okay, you, you're capable of this, but is it weird being like, I have a vision for this and, and the, the DP has a totally different vision for this. And I'm kind of maybe kind of listen to him because I trust him more than I even trust myself. Um, well, if, if you have a vision and the DP has a completely different vision, then you're in trouble. Well, I mean, in terms of you were saying the shots, in terms of like you had mentioned earlier about about certain shot, like you might have seen a shot or written down the shot in a way that, in your mind, looks in a certain way, but the DP might even interpret those words in a different way. Right. So, I mean, certainly there has to be. I'm not saying like straight up conflict where you think he's making a, a fucking western and you're making a sci-fi, like <laughs> but like, but in terms of like, but in terms of like this this uh, this particular shot is just tr like trust me, the shot looks better I, this way. I just think it always boils down to the quality of the idea. You need to be able to step back and look at the idea that's come up from 
the gaffer or the DP or whoever or the script supervisor and say, this is a great idea. Everybody, we're doing that. And I think that that's your job as a director. You're, you're conducting the orchestra. You're not playing every instrument. And you have these people that are great musicians. You got to let the band play. So as long as you have the, you know, your job at that point is to just know what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. Is, is your idea better than their idea? And are you honestly taking a step back and looking at them and not be judgmental, but being creative about these ideas? If you're doing that and you feel your idea is better, then you can also articulate why your idea is better. And then spend, you spend two minutes talking to the DP and saying, here's, you know, that's a great idea, but here's, here's why I never thought of that. I never thought of that because I thought of this, 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 this. Mm -hmm. And if he is a creative person and he is contributing, then he'll say, oh, right. And then either he goes with your idea or there's a third idea that comes up from your thing and his thing and it becomes the new thing. And that's the beauty of collaboration. And if his ideas is better, you just go, awesome, thanks for the suggestion. This is a great idea, let's do that. And, um, and you just have to kind of know, know which one you have to choose. But when people come to you with ideas, you're actually in a really good place because you have to create an environment where people will come to you with ideas. And on a movie set, you don't start out that way. You start out from a place where People might challenge your ideas, but they are not coming to you with ideas all mm. the time. And that's what you want. You want to create a place where, you know, I would love to just spend time with the construction guys, just building the thing, and, and just talking to them about the movie. Not because I had a lot of time to waste. I didn't have a lot of time. But still, they were maybe putting it up, and I was an hour early on set because I was so nervous that there was no sleeping. And so just by talking to them, they would tell me things about the movie that they liked, that they had read the script. And I'm like, the construction people have read the script? This is amazing. And they, they've done the math about some of the equations that are in the script. <laughs> this is amazing. And why shouldn't I listen to some of the things they're saying? Because at the very least, they can say, okay, and how about we push it a little more in? But if it's a great idea, it's going to make the movie better. Yeah. And it's going to make him work even harder because he's contributing to it, which is why it's called a collaboration, right? Right. So I think it really boils down to having confidence in what you're doing. And that kind of confidence gives you the ability to discern a good idea from a bad idea. And then if it's your idea, great. And if it's someone else's idea, great. Fair enough. That's a good outlook. We're turning the ship towards home. So we've gone through this entire process of making this movie. The years where you didn't know what was happening with it. Robert Kirkman and DA coming in, saving it. Picking you up as a golden child. <laughs> putting you with their first Skybound feature film. My question is, it's Tuesday. The movie finally comes out on Friday. Where are you at mentally? I'm... Um, Dying. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for asking. No, yeah. it's a pleasure. I, it's just, I can't imagine some, working on, like, you know, we work on these videos, we put them out, like, the longest lead time is I've, you know, I edited an Oreo and two weeks later it goes up. <laughs> I'm like, I hope people like it. I kind of forget about it. You know what I mean? For you, this has been a project for so long and now we're, f the finish line's finally there. I can't, 
even fathom what it's like for you. Are you are you anxious for your reviews? Are you excited? Are you going to read them? Are you going to stay away from them? Are there? Um, so, well, first of all, I I think we were talking about this earlier before the show started, and I used to be very very nervous when my first game and my second game and when Manant came out. I used to be like the reviews and pe- are people going to buy it and my career is over and why am I doing this? I don't know anything about video games and I hope nobody finds out about Rockstar because they'll fire me immediately. <laughs> and and then you kind of grow through it and it becomes more of um, a process where you're like, you know, people... I hope people like this game. I hope people go buy this game. And I I I know that there'll be people that will hate it and people that like it. And I hope there's enough people that like it that they have a good time. And it becomes almost more about the people that enjoy it um, as opposed to yourself or sure. the reviews or the money or the getting fired. Um, and it becomes more about what have I learned and what can I do next? What have I learned from Red Dead? What can I use in the next game? Sure. Um, and now I'm catapulted all the way back to to the beginning, where I'm like, I'm never gonna make another movie. Uh, the reviews are gonna be terrible, and uh, you know I, I'm a hack, and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I, I, in a way, that's how I feel right now. I would say, I hope the reviewers uh, are gonna go easy on the film. I know that. Clearly, it's a small production, so there is things to like and things not to like. Sure. Um, it's also a first film. And if I look at my first game right now, I wanted to go with E.T. and with the first films. <laughs> so there is a big pile of stuff. And I don't, right now, I don't know if Air belongs to that world or not. It does not, it does not, belong. It does not belong in the landfill. It's, no, it does I not. really enjoyed the movie. It's I, certainly, no, I didn't mean that, but it's certainly my first film. Sure, sure, sure. And... Sure. Um, and so, you know, there's that. But there was also like a sense of, for me, a sense of really wanting people to enjoy it. Like you guys seem to have enjoyed it. And yeah. that makes me really happy. And I know that Norman and Jaiman are very proud of the film. And that makes me very happy because they go and talk about it um, very kindly and very nicely. And, um, you know, again, they, they were doing it just out of, passion they're not doing it because somebody is giving them bags of gold or something Mm -hmm. and for that i'm very grateful and i'm grateful that you have me here and um and ultimately you do these things i certainly do these things for for the people to go watch them so i i ultimately i want to be able to say as much as i'm worried about my mental health um i i hope that whatever gets written and whatever gets said the people in the movie theaters and at home in front of the film enjoy it, love the music, love the visuals, mm. love the story and the characters. And if that happens, then I've done my job. So that's where I hope it goes. See, that's a great outlook. Have that. Don't be worried. Don't be pulling your hair out. Yeah, do you know, I mean, do you know in your head, I, always, I like asking game developers this, do you know in your head when they're, I, I assume you have an embargo under for your reviews for critical reception? I for, think it's being lifted. It's, okay, so I was going to say, oh, I was, it's already I was, happening. The bombs are going off. Yeah, so the I, bombs are going I'm off. I'm glad okay. you're here in a safe place. Because I, because I, because I, I, I love asking game developers that question because I know that I know well, we know a lot of developers personally and they've, and a lot of them obsess over that kind of stuff. So yeah. they know exactly when it lifts and they'll get up in the middle of the night if they have to and start reading or whatever. Yeah, but. I mean I couldn't I couldn't not. You you have to. I mean that's the thing that's the that's the burden of creation, right? Is that you have to 
you have to go through that process and i can't even imagine what it is we get the luxury of just sitting back on our on our thrones over here on our high horses and just picking everything apart critically but you actually gone out there and created something and that is amazing and it's good yeah that, that is the other and thank you for making something that's actually entertaining because it makes our jobs a lot easier when we can actually talk to someone from a point of like respect as opposed to uh uh, actually, I don't think we've ever had, we've never we don't have people we've on the show that we don't. Oh no! no. <laughs> we've never I was going to say we've, we've had quite a few creators on this, and generally the, the the beauty of what we get to do is we get to actually pick and choose what we talk yeah. who we talk to. So we don't have to lament on the negative. We don't have to anymore. Uh, we're not forced to criticize everything across the board, which means that we have to indulge in the good stuff and the bad stuff. Unfortunately, so we get the luxury of going, "Hey, this is cool. Let's invite him up here and talk to him about it." And so, and here you are. We fed you really bad Thai food ahead of time, and you've been you whoa, look great. Though. Whoa, really bad? It's okay. It's okay. It's overrated Thai it's food. Great. The uh, I will say that I, I I think it's it's been fun, and that's why I, I like to sit back and listen to people talk. I mean, I think I, that's why I love TED and all these kinds of things. I just like listening to people. That's why I love documentaries. Who's and stuff. TED? TED. The, uh, you, you know, you know, who, you know who TED is. Uh, or should I say what? Uh, but it's you have a you. I think you have actually a really amazing way with words and yeah. actually analogies, uh, which I think is quite effective and and. You know, demonstrating your own experience in the gaming industry and movie industry. So I found it. I like to stay out of the way of the interviews when when I like what's. You don't have to steer it. You know what I mean. So that's mm-hmm. why I want. So mm-hmm. You know, everyone out there know. I'm, that's why I was quiet, just listening, learning like that. Thank you. Because well, especially because with film, like I'm just I'm, I'm I, I know a lot about games, uh, a great deal about games, but I don't know much about film. So I try to absorb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know a little bit more. Like when you mm-hmm. were talking about a jib. I don't. I don't don't actually. I don't even know if I believe that that's actually a real thing. But um, (laughs) it's a nautical term. It's like when you go through the tall sextant, and you don't want you don't want the gyms getting you. Uh, You talked about the beauty is that we get to pick people, creators we want on here to come on because we like Mm, their work. Indeed. You know what the other beauty thing is? Everything. What is it? We get to pick our sponsors. We do indeed. Today we're sponsored by Squarespace.com. You can go start your free trial today, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Like when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code KINDAFUNNY to get 10% off your first purchase. Nick. Yes. We say this all the time. All the time. Because we did pick Squarespace. We did. You used Squarespace before they they were even a sponsor of the show. Before it was cool. Yeah, we were there before we're hipster Squarespace. No, Con- we, yeah, kindofunny.com is built on Squareplace pla- Squarespace platform, and it's fantastic. Uh, it's very, very easy. If you guys want to go out there and make a simple tutorial site or you want a site for your business, it's very, very easy to get both up and running very, very quickly. I stand by the product. Because uh, everything looks good. I kind of want to marry it, actually. You want to marry I'm, well, I'm already married, but I'm thinking on my second marriage, maybe. You're going to marry .com. Marry a dot .com. Well, yeah. Uh, this is what the Congress It's because it's reconfigurable. I can make it into whatever I want. Oh. That's the thing. Can make it anything. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website for only $8 a month. You can even get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. So what are you waiting for? Start a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code KINDAFUNNY to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for us. Kind of funny. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Christian Cantamesa. You are a treasure, and I'm glad we stole you from Italy, and you're here now with us. Um, Air, if you, I'm just going to say, if you're watching this, it's probably out already. Uh, Friday, it comes out. Everybody go get it. You can go see it in theaters. You can go down. You can buy it and download it off that. We'll have a link down there to the Amazon version, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Thank you thank for everything. You. Thank you for coming up here. Thanks for making great movies making great games. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you for being so kind to have me here and for being the audience that I you know, always dreamed of having. Oh, oh. you're very welcome. Nice. 
That is very nice. That's a nice compliment. Nobody even about you specifically. Nobody ever says nice things to me on this podcast. Oh, Kevin, The shit filters this way. So Tim is always fine. Colin, no one messes with you. We give shit to you. I get, I am basically the, so this is the position, the armpit. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then Kevin is the unfortunate anus. He's the butt. Of the group. Yeah, Kevin's the butthole. Unfortunate. Kevin is the crotch. You're a beautiful butthole. Kevin <laughs> Butthole Coelho, we call him. <laughs> Start Google. Everybody Google that tonight. So it'll be show us a Google search result. Why? <laughs> if you didn't know, this has been the Game Over Greggy Show each and every week. Four, sometimes five, best friends gather on this table. Jesus. Each bring a random topic, a discussion for your. You went faster. That's my normal. I say when I say this table, I do it. It's how I gotta get it. Keep up. I'm if you want to throw us a few bucks, go to Patreon.com/slash Kind of Funny. You get each and every episode early. But if you have no money to give us, no problem. Go to YouTube.com/slash Kind of Funny Monday through Thursday, where we break it out topic by topic before posting the entire show on Friday for you to enjoy. And if it's a Friday, it doesn't even matter. Any Friday, air is out. Go get air. Go watch air. Norman Reedus, Christian. What else you want? He's an amazing person. Support him. You support Ari, do you see? He actually made something. Yeah. Colin and I don't make anything except funny. <laughs> we, made, we made a lot of things. We made Podcast Beyond. Sure. We the made Games Colin Cast. and Greg Live. Yeah. I mean, we Kinda made funny things. Games Cast, Game Over Greggy Show. But again, like we didn't have to go into a bunker and film water. No, we didn't have to that. kill a canary. No. We could have killed a canary. This uh, man has well, strangled Don't answer that question. Death. As your legal counsel, don't answer that question. <laughs> Until next time. I'm not allowed to talk about death. It's been our pleasure to serve you. <laughs>